to Crossroads Church. Man, what a way to begin. Hopefully you believe uh, the words that we just sang about, that he is worthy and full of praise. And we gather together to celebrate that. We gather together to lift the name of Jesus, to celebrate what he's doing in our lives, to come together, to be uh, refreshed and refilled for the week ahead of us. And so, man, I am really, really glad that you are here today. If you are new with us, my name is Matt Manning. Uh, I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. And uh, we're so glad that you are here today, whether you made it in-house on this chilly uh, Sunday morning or whether you are hanging out uh, at your home. We are uh, grateful that you are here. Uh, we've been in this series of Acts, and today I want to start off with a uh, question for you to ponder and to think about as we walk through our sermon time together, and it's this. If I was to give you a little bit of homework today, and I was to give you a moment to think through uh, what a list um, of qualifications of what does it look like to be a part of the church, what would you choose? Like, in other words, what would a person have to be or do or believe in order to be a part of the church? What would you consider like out of bounds? What would disqualify someone? What would, what would that list look like for you? We are currently in week four of this sermon series where we're going through the book of Acts. And what we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks is how this, this movement of the gospel, starting with these 12 disciples, these 12 guys, really became this worldwide movement that each and every one of us are a part of today. And we look, and as we're looking at this, we're really seeing kind of the awakening of the church, that the church is awakening to its identity. And the vision of God is becoming clear in this section of earth where we're in this section of Acts, where we're discovering that the church is this countercultural movement that creates a new kind of human being, a new person who has new values, new identity, new community. And as we've been walking through kind of the, these early chapters of Acts, what we've seen is as the church, uh, you know, becomes this identity, who it is that's signing up to be a part of it, how it's shaping in these early days. And so a few weeks ago, we looked in, in kind of the first week of this series, we were introduced to a guy named uh, 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 Simon, who is this magician. That's what he did by trade. And, and as we're introduced to him, he has bad theology. He thinks he can, he thinks he can purchase God. And yet by the end of his story, he is trusting Jesus and, and he's in, he's, he's a part, he's welcomed in with open arms to the movement. And immediately we see that when, it, that when it comes to being a part of the church, you don't have to have all of your, your beliefs figured out. If you trust Jesus, you're in. Then the next week we encountered this Ethiopian eunuch who had his sexual identity robbed from him at an early age, who, who undoubtedly went through life with questions about gender and identity, feeling like the outsider his entire life, and yet he trusts Jesus and he is welcomed in to this movement of the church. And we're shown that even when it comes to matters of gender and sexuality and all of the questions that's such a buzz in our culture right now, that that does not keep you out of the church, trust Jesus and you're in. Then last week we were introduced to this guy named Saul who eventually we'll know as Paul. 
and he's like the villainous character in the church, that he is the villain of the early church. Like he's hunting down believers, giving high fives to their executioners as he makes his way to the next city to do the same thing. He has this encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and all of a sudden his life is changed. He sees grace and mercy, and he goes from being the greatest persecutor of our faith to the greatest spokesman that our faith has ever had. I mean, it is so impossible to think it would be like like Thanos not trying to kill Cap, but all of a sudden fighting a long cap. Like that's what's going on here. Like it is, it is so unfathomable. He trusts Jesus and he's welcomed into the church. I mean, if there was any one person who would be disqualified because of their sin, murdering Christians seems like pretty high up there on the list. And yet he is welcomed into the church, which means that you don't have to have your life all together. You don't have to be morally shiny in order to get in. Trust Jesus in your end. Bad theology, sexual identity, sin doesn't keep you from the church. Today, as we dive in, we find ourselves at this pivotal moment in all of scriptures. It's this moment where the apostles come together and, and, and everything that they thought they understood about God, everything that they thought they knew about being a part of this movement that Jesus began called the church is about to get blown up in a story that is so significant, so important, that a majority of us are impacted by it even today, some 2,000 years later. Our story begins with Peter, one of the early disciples of Jesus, one of the originals, and we find him couch surfing at Simon's house. Now, this isn't Simon the magician, but another Simon who is a tanner. And this tanner lives in the city of Joppa. Now, if you're unfamiliar with a tanner's work, basically a tanner works with dead animals. More specifically, he works with the skins of dead animals, and he takes them off the animals, and he tans them in order to in order for them to be useful in culture. This isn't a hobby for him, this is, his, this is his trade, that every day his life consists of working with dead animals. Now, to wrap our minds around where so much of this story is gonna take place, we need to remove ourselves from kind of our current day and go back some 2,000 years to a time in history where there was no air conditioning or ventilation or refrigeration or chemicals to help this tanner do what he did. That in the hot summer months, it would stink. That you could smell a tanner's house from, from blocks, if not miles away. And on top of that, according to Jewish law that we find in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, that the law said that if anybody was to touch a dead carcass, that immediately they would become unclean, which meant that they could not go to the temple and worship. If that wasn't bad enough, for a tanner who would touch dead animals, dead carcasses of animals, anybody who came into their presence and touched them would then also be unclean. And so a life of a tanner was one where you could not worship in the temple and largely was a, was a, was a life of isolation within the Jewish culture. And so we're introduced to this guy named Simon who is a devout Jew. He is a, a follower of God. But when it comes to, like, you know, the ladder of Judaism, you know, of Jewishness, he's, like, at the bottom rung. That everybody knows what he does. Everybody sees what he does. He is considered unclean and not able to worship. And so here we have Peter, 
a once devout Jew, now a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, and not just any disciple of Jesus, but the leader of this movement called the church, and he's hanging out at the Tanner's house. And he's feeling pretty good about life. Peter's thinking, I am now, because of what Jesus has done for me in my life, that I'm now couch surfing at the Tanners. I'm staying the night at the unclean dude's house. Like, like he's feeling pretty good about where he's at, how progressive he is, how, how, you know, how God has changed him because of grace and mercy. And as good as he is feeling, his entire world is about to get rocks. Because little does he know some 35 miles north of Joppa in a town called Caesarea, there is a man that is about to turn the Bible upside down. We pick up the story in Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1. It begins like this. Luke, the author of Acts, writes this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohorts. A devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now, Caesarea, for us to know, was a town that was created and really built by Herod the Great. And he built this town of Caesarea as a monument or a memorial to the leader of the known world, Caesar. And really, it served as the command post for all of Palestine, for all of Israel. Caesarea was the command post when it came to Rome. Now, for most of Caesarea, it was filled with, most of its population was Gentile which is to say that they were not Jewish like the people of Israel or even half Jewish like the people of Samaria, that they were, that they were Gentiles. That is, that they were not the chosen people of God. And there in Caesarea was a temple, and the temple there was dedicated to Caesar. And it stood in stark contrast there in Israel to the temple in Jerusalem that was dedicated to Yahweh. That in every, in every way, Caesarea was the, the picture of penetration when it came to Gentile rule and the subjugation that the Jews had when it came to Rome. And for that reason, the Jews hated it. They absolutely hated this city that was in Israel. However, there in Caesarea is a guy named Cornelius. And we're told that he's a centurion, which meant that he was a leader of about 100 men, 100 soldiers there in, in Caesarea. Now, Luke, the writer of Acts, gives us this really important and interesting commentary that his cohort was from Italy, that this was an Italian cohort. This is really interesting because from history, what we know is that when the Roman soldiers would start recruiting, that most of the Roman soldiers came from the local regions. And we know in Caesarea that most of the Roman soldiers were Syrians. To be Italian means that you volunteered for this, that this was the elite crew that was brought in to make sure that Roman law was followed in Israel. And Cornelius is the leader of this. Like, he's the alpha. He's tough as nails. When he walks around, people defer to him. They give him honor. They give him respect. That's who Cornelius is. And Acts, uh, the Luke, the writer of Acts, also tells us that he's a God-fearing man. He's someone who, who cares for the Jews. And he's a praying man, not to the gods of Rome, but rather to the one true God of, of Israel. And so we we have here in the heart of the Roman rule in Palestine, this man who is not a proselyte, that is, he was not a full convert to Judaism, but rather a Gentile who is seeking God, 
Verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms, they have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his, of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So here we have this man who, again, is not an Israelite, but rather a God-fearing, God-seeking Gentile. And he's praying during the usual time of Jewish prayer. And suddenly this angel shows up. And the angel comes to him and says, says Cornelius, your prayers have been heard. Like, like God sees what you're doing in this world. God sees you. God knows you. And you need to go find a guy named Peter. He's hanging out in Joppa because he has what you're looking for. I mean, this is so extraordinary. A Gentile in a city built by a Gentile ruler to honor a Roman emperor is visited by an angel in heaven told to go find a Jew who's hanging out in Joppa who happens to be the leader of a movement that claims they found the Jewish Messiah. That something so big is about to happen here. So bizarre that it will change the way that they understand the scriptures as they know it. God says, Peter, the apostle, the leader, he needs to be involved. That you can find him at the stinky house in Joppa. You'll know it when you get there. Verse 9. Then the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Now, I've never had a trance. I don't know what a trance looks like, but in this trance, Peter has a vision. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by the four corners upon the earth. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is, that is common or unclean. So Cornelius' boys, they're, they're on the way to Joppa. Meanwhile, Peter's hanging out at Simon the Tanner's house. It's about lunchtime. He's waiting for lunch to be served. He decides, I'm going to go up to the rooftop, and I'm going to spend some time in prayer. And while he's up there praying, God brings this trance upon him where he sees this vision where this sheet is falling from heaven, and there's all these birds and these animals and insects, like, crawling around in the sheet. It's totally weird. And then it gets more bizarre because this voice out of heaven starts talking to Peter and says, Peter, I want you to kill and eat all that is in this. Now, for us, this is, it is difficult for us to truly comprehend and understand what is going on here. In our culture, in our time, in history, this is, this is difficult for us to understand what's happening here. But the key verse is verse 12. The sheet that is, that is coming down is filled with all kinds of animals and insects and birds. And many of these things that are in the sheet would have absolutely been considered unclean. 
See, if we go all the way back to Leviticus, we get the dietary restrictions, the dietary laws that came along with being Jewish. That there were certain foods that Jewish people could eat to remain clean and others that if they ate, they would become unclean. These animals were, were saw as unclean. And any devout Jew or even any culturally, um, how would I say it, culturally like sensitive or, or, or culturally compliant Jew would never eat unclean food, such as a camel, a rabbit, pork. I mean, can you even imagine for a moment life without bacon? Like I told you this was significant, right? Like, thank you God for Acts chapter 10. So this voice from heaven tells Peter, I want you to kill and eat these things, including the animals that are unclean for a Jew. And Peter, in typical Peter fashion, goes, no way, Lord, ain't doing it. Now, can you really say no, Lord? Like, I know that we try in our culture from time to time, but to say no, God, implies that he's not really Lord and, and maybe not even God. And maybe, maybe Peter's not even there, right? Maybe Peter thinks this is like some test. And he's like, no way, Lord, ain't doing it. Like, I see what this is. Last time we went down this road, you ended up calling me Satan, not going down again. Good try, buddy. <laughs> right? Like, like, regardless, regardless, in his zeal, Peter, Peter is trying to remain faithful to God. And it gives us a small glimpse, a picture into how a man formed under Judaism, of course, would be shaped by the law even though he is now the leader of a movement that is founded on grace. Verse 15, the voice spoke, uh, the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. <laughs> like Pete, three times. Peter, you getting this? Are you, are you seeing this? There's, there's, there's no more clean and unclean. And I know you're like wrestling with the category and you're thinking about food right now because it's lunch and everything else. But I need you to see that I'm just catapulting this for you to see people the way that I see people. Verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gates. And called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I am the one who has sent them. Three times. God says, I've come to you three times, Peter, to get out of your mind what is clean and unclean, to move you out of the categories of sacred and profane. Three times I want you to get this. And so Peter's thinking all about this. He's thinking, pondering these things. And then there's a knock at the door. Hey, Pete, someone here, someone's here for you, verse 21. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one that you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well-spoken by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And so he invited them in to be his guests. I mean, can you imagine this happening? That Peter has this vision 
And then three non-Jewish Roman soldiers come to see him who's been sent by a centurion. And they look at him and they say, Peter, <laughs> there's an angel who kind of showed up to us and said, you had what we needed, so we want you to come with us. Come again? Yeah. So my boss, his name's Cornelius, he was praying and this angel showed up and said that you had what he needed, that he needs to hear from you, so we're asking that you come, that you come with us. Verse 23. So he invited them to be his guests, and the next day he rose and he went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Like to understand what's truly going on here, to see what's happening, we have to realize that this is total defilement in Jewish culture. Jews were clean, Gentiles unclean. Remember the laws for a Jew to even be in the presence of someone who is unclean, to touch someone who is unclean would immediately make them unclean and they would not be able to worship in the temple. And so to hang out with Gentiles was unfathomable, to invite them in your house, I mean, come on. And so Peter invites these soldiers in and he goes to his boys and he goes, okay guys, crazy story sitting at the top on the rooftop, praying to God. I have this vision. All of a sudden, all this animals comes down on the sheet. I hear this voice, Peter, go eat bacon. I'm thinking, what in the world? And all of a sudden, these three soldiers show up, say they're sent by a centurion named Cornelius, and that we're going to go to Caesarea to meet him because an angel came down, and I have something for him. I don't know what's going on, but I need to know who's got my six, <laughs> right? And who's, got my, who's got my back in this? Take yourself out of the story for a moment. Has God ever surprised you with something? You know, where you thought you, you knew or you knew something, you saw something so clearly, and then all of a sudden God did something and he began to shift it, and all of a sudden your perspective shifted on how God operated. I mean, take for example, maybe love. Maybe you come here week in and week out and you hear about how God loves you and, and every week you walk away and go, yeah, maybe, but I don't think he likes me. And then stuff happens in your life. All of a sudden your world blows up and God's right there loving you every step of the way. And all of a sudden you, you come to realize what it means for God to truly love you and your perspective begins to shift. And you see God communicating and revealing to you the way that he operates. Same thing going on here with Peter, verse 24. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. I mean, this is a party. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and immediately fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too, I too am a man. So Peter makes the journey, he makes the journey and this Roman commander in the midst of all of these people, right, the alpha commander, tough as nails dude, falls down and begins to worship this Jewish man. And Peter has the wherewithal of mind to go, <laughs> go man, you gotta get up. Like I am just a man, I am not made out of marble, I am not divine, I am just a man who Jesus has gotten a hold of, verse 37. And as he talked with him, he went and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Like Cornelius, you get how weird this is, right? Like this, this is big, this is significant, this don't happen every day. 
But God had shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them, why you sent me? In other words, Peter goes, for the last 35 miles I've been walking and I've been thinking about the vision that God gave me and I've come to realize that there is no person that is unclean, no person who is unworthy to follow Jesus. In God's perfect timing, in his, in his demonstrated sovereignty, the men from Caesarea arrive at precisely the moment that God has brought Peter to the point of readiness to move across the boundaries and to come to a spot where he would have previously considered inconceivable. I mean, step by step, God has, has taken the gospel and moved it from Jerusalem, largely Jewish, to Judea, largely Jewish, to the half-Jews, the half-breeds of the Samaritans, eventually to places like Joppa and Lydia, places that were filled with Gentiles. God even brings Peter to the point where he's hanging out with Simon, the unclean tanner, upon whose roof God's going to reveal that because of what Jesus has done, there is no one who is unclean. That everyone, that Jesus can cleanse every heart from sin, both Jew and Gentile alike. Cornelius answers Peter in verse 33. He says this, So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Verse 34, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is, after all, Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, and we are his witnesses as all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all people, but to those of us who had been chosen to be witnesses. God ate and drank with him after he, he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. This is what all the prophets, all the prophets bear witness to, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That Cornelius gives Peter the floor and Peter begins to retell the story of Jesus. Now, let's, let's, let's understand here that for most Romans, they were polytheistic. That's how most cultures were. That is that they, they believed in a plethora and a multiplicity of gods. They had a choice of which gods to worship. And Peter comes on the scene and he says to them, at the end of your story, you need to understand that you are going to meet the one God. There is only one God and he is judge. And at the end of your story, you don't get to judge him. He's going to judge you. And so at the end of your story, you need to know, you need to know that Jesus is the only one that ultimately matters. And Peter tells them, 
that everyone who believes in Jesus as Lord and Savior receives forgiveness of sin is in welcomed into the family of God. The Bible just got turned upside down. This is the gospel, and it's coming for the Gentiles. This is why it had to be Peter. It couldn't be, you know, Philip or one of the other main guys of the scripture. It had to be Peter. It had to be the leader because when this was told, people had to know this wasn't being made up, that this was, that this was true. It had to be Peter who stands up and goes, they get in just like we get in. That everybody walks through the same door. It's the door of forgiveness. That's the way that you enter into a relationship with Jesus. That's what it means to be a part of the church. No difference. Greek, Gentile, Jew, no difference. We're all the same. We all come in the same door. And so here's my question for you. My question is, go back to the lists that you mentally put together at the beginning of the sermon. Of what does a person have to be or do or believe in order to be a part of the church? And the question I want you to think through is this, is who is the Cornelius in your life? Who is the person that you would consider unclean? The person that, that wouldn't belong in the church? Who you would consider out of bounds? And what would the barriers have to be? What would the barriers that you would need to overcome in order to be faithful and obedient to bring the message of the gospel to the Cornelius that God has put in your life. See, every person, every person out there is a person that was made in the image of God. Every person out there, Jesus died for. And our mission, the moment that we said yes to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our mission as being a part of the countercultural movement here in North Metro Denver area is to tell them about Jesus. That's our mission. And so as we wrap this up, I want to give you a moment to respond. I want you to, for just a minute, to think about the person, the Cornelius, who's in your life. And today, I don't want you to pray for them. I want you to spend a moment praying for yourself. What barriers do you need to overcome? What strength do you need? What courage do you need from God to be faithful and obedient, to bring the message of hope, of grace and faith to the Cornelius in your life? For others of you, you may realize today that you are Cornelius. That for you, you've lived your entire life feeling like you were on the outside looking in. For your entire life, you felt that you weren't worthy to follow Jesus, that your life wasn't good enough, that you had, you had too much baggage to come to Jesus. And today you realize, you realize that you're Cornelius and that you can walk through the doors of forgiveness and enter into the family of God just like anyone else. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes and for just a minute to respond to this.
Father, today in our culture and in our time, silence is not something that we're very familiar with. To sit with our own thoughts, to allow space for us to hear what you would have for us. Father, I'm grateful for this pivotal moment in Acts chapter 10. Lord, the way that it impacts 98% of us who are sitting here even today. Lord, without this chapter, we're not a part. Without this chapter, we don't have hope. Without this chapter, we don't have life. And so, God, we give you praise. Just like we sang about earlier today, we give you high praise. You are so faithful to us. You are so loving, so full of grace and mercy. Father, I pray today... Lord, that for those of us who have been believers, Lord, that you would give us the courage and the strength that we read about in Acts. Lord, that we would be bold. Lord, every single one of us has, has thought of the Cornelius in our lives, the person who, who maybe we've discounted, the person who we think is too far away, who wouldn't belong here. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for those thoughts that you would move in us in a way that opens our eyes to see them the way that you see them. And in doing so, that you would give us the courage, just like Peter, to share the story of Jesus. God, I do pray for the Corneliuses that are in the room. Lord, over this last minute of just quiet, Lord, I pray that you were faithful in knocking on the door of their heart. And Lord, in that, that they begin to experience and see you, our good and loving Father who is always faithful. Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's in the powerful name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. If you are one of the Corneliuses sitting here today and you're ready to respond to the message, we'd love to have that conversation with you. You can text the name of Jesus to our text line. And, uh, and we'll be ready to talk. Today we gather together as a church around communion. And we realize today that there is no one unclean, no one unworthy of following God, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. That where his body was broken and his blood was poured out, the way that John writes it in his gospel is that God so loves the entire world that he gave his son so that whoever believes would not just have life, but have it everlasting. And so today we remember that our sins were paid for by the broken body of Jesus. And as we drink from the cup that his blood spilt out on our behalf is the blood that gives us life. So today I'm gonna to invite all of us as unclean and worthy to lift our voices to God to go ahead and stand as we sing together. If you need prayer over the next 20 minutes online, you can click the button in house, you can make your way over to the banner, but let's sing together this beautiful and great old hymn.